Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Tara Kieran, a family doctor, medical researcher, professor at U of T, and frankly, an overall expert in primary care, including how we can improve access and quality to primary care in Canada. Her research has covered a broad range of topics from cancer screening to chronic disease prevention, often with a specific focus on quality improvement. And she is currently the lead of the Our Care Project at MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. The project, which you can participate in by going to ourcare.ca, aims to engage the public with a view to improve primary care access and quality, and that's the core of our conversation. What needs to be done as a matter of system design, and what needs to come forward as a matter of new investment to ensure that Canadians receive the access and quality of primary care that we deserve. Sarah, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You have written that primary care is the foundation of any high-functioning health system, and more recently you wrote that family doctors are the front door of our health system, and as the front door, they connect us to the rest of the healthcare system, an essential function. Let's start with where we are at with respect to access to primary care. What's the current state of that access here in Ontario and across Canada? Yeah, so I mean, I'll start by saying that um, there's a lot of evidence out there that health systems that have strong primary care components um, deliver better health outcomes at lower cost and better health equity. So that means like better outcomes across different population groups. Um, So there's lots of good evidence out there that we should be investing in primary care. And what's also clear to me is that it seems to me that people living in Canada get that. They want to have a family doctor or primary care provider, and it's super frustrating to them when they don't. Um, And unfortunately, that problem has just gotten, it's been bad even before the pandemic, and it's just gotten worse. So even before the pandemic, um, we knew that there are about 4.6 million people living in Canada who didn't have a regular primary care provider. So that's a family doctor or nurse practitioner usually. Um, And research we've done has shown that over the pandemic, that's probably just gotten worse. Um, So in Ontario, we found that in the first six months of the pandemic, um, we had about twice the proportion of doctors stopping work than we would have expected based on trends over the last uh, decade. So as an example, um, you know, we found in the six month period there were just under 400 doctors in Ontario who stopped work. Maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, but even a very conservative estimate based on, you know, some of those maybe were working in walk-in clinics, but the ones we know for sure were seeing patients on a regular basis had kind of a, what we call a panel of patients, a conservative estimate with that, you know, just that those 400 doctors leaving would leave like 170,000 patients um, without a family doctor. Um, And so that was just our research from the first six months. And then, of course, the pandemic has worn on and issues of burnout among their profession have grown. Um, There are lots of other challenges. Um, And what we've seen is, uh, you know, when we did a survey in the Toronto area in 2021, and we asked people, family doctors, um, about whether they were thinking of closing their practice. And we were really surprised that one in five said that they were thinking of closing their practice in the next five years. And so unfortunately, we don't have updated data on like how it is right now for people in terms of family doctors, but everything we're reading anecdotally is that people are struggling more than they've ever been. 
And I understand the challenges of the pandemic, of course, and the burnout is real across doctors, across nurses, across so many people in the healthcare system. We have had a longstanding challenge in this country with respect to access to primary care. You often hear about it in rural communities, but and it's more acute there, I think, unquestionably. But there are challenges in urban settings as well, especially with respect to specific populations and, and low-income populations in particular. What explains this ongoing challenge? So I, I understand the, the burnout, the challenge of the pandemic has exacerbated everything. But what explains the the bleak situation that we found ourselves in even before the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, we almost have to, I think, go back to kind of how medicine has evolved. So if we think back even, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, the system was really designed for something different. Um, so early 2000s, almost all family doctors um, across the country were paid um, what we call fee-for-service, and that's paid by the visit. And they're generally working in their own office. They may share that office space with other people, and they may hire staff with those other people together. Um, but uh, generally, you know, they're not working with other team members and um, generally... It's kind of almost a paternalistic style where the doctor is the expert and the patient comes in and then the, the doctor gives them advice. Um, and then, you know, we fast forward to where we are today or even where we were 20 years ago, actually, because uh, we could see this 20 years ago. We really needed a system that was for something different. Um, no longer were people coming in for like one problem, an acute problem, but you know, now people are coming in, and even 20 years ago, people were coming in because they had multiple chronic conditions. Um, so that means like they might have diabetes and high blood pressure and asthma, and, you know, maybe depression all at the same time. And as you can imagine, like a pay by the visit, that's kind of designed to see like one thing, like a sore ankle or a sore throat, isn't really designed in the same way to look after complexity. And so We've got an aging population, growing chronic conditions, also increasing amounts of medical evidence um, and this sort of shift to an evidence-based paradigm where lots of research that we as family doctors have to keep up on, lots of new drugs that are coming out. And it's actually challenging to, to um, keep up with it all, but then also challenging to integrate it all in the context of a whole person. Um, because almost these guidelines are written for one disease at a time, when in reality, people have five diseases at a time. Um, so, And then we've got the internet that's uh, giving people lots of great sources of information. Um, and, but, uh, and, and, so, and we're just still here as like one doctor in the office, supposed to see people for like 10 minutes. Like it doesn't work. And so and add to that, I think, is family medicine has always been a specialty that hasn't gotten as much respect from even within the medical profession. So we always had like an issue of people not wanting to choose it for that reason. Um, many of the teachers in our medical student schools are actually not family doctors. So, I mean, in the early 2000s, that was recognized and actually like some of these issues. And there were attempts at reform. And here in Ontario, for example, um, we introduce new types of payments for physicians, um, new team-based models. But across the country, these reforms really stalled. They haven't really moved forward in the way that many of us thought they could. 
And, and we can talk more about these reforms and why they're needed. But I think, you know, as we, if we keep this old system of fee-for-service, doctors working on their own, without actually kind of, they're all each small business owners without a lot of accountability to the system. I think we're not going to get the results that we desire. I do think that some of it relates to this pay relativity um, in relation to family medicine and other specialties. Um, but then there are other reasons why our grads are no longer choosing it. So one of the other things to, to mention that was happening even before the pandemic was that family medicine grads, for, sorry, medical student grads were less likely to choose family medicine as a specialty. And then even if they did, they were less likely to um, choose to practice in a way that was like delivering cradle to grade kind of care. Right. Um, they were they were more likely to go into kind of a specialty like sports medicine. And there's lots of reasons for that, but uh, some of them relate to what I've just talked about. But when you talk about the results that we ultimately want, it's not only an access issue. You've also written about it being a quality issue. And I think you wrote the quality of primary care consistently ranks poorly in Canada compared with other high income countries. I, I wasn't I didn't enjoy reading that. <laughs> and so there are lots of explanations that you started to outline there, but you've also identified a way forward through an Our Care campaign that you have begun and many others are involved in. Walk me through what that campaign is and what you're aiming to achieve. Yeah, so I'm a family doctor and also a researcher. And, you know, I've seen and been part of conversations about primary care reform for over a decade now. And I see who's at the table in those in those conversations. Usually it's professional organizations, um, people who are health professionals themselves, and you know, governments or government agencies. And I've learned over the last few years through work I've done to try and improve quality of care in our own practice, how important it is to hear directly from the people who are using the system. And this um, initiative we've launched, Our Care, is really about trying to bring the public's voice into the decision-making around what the future of primary care should look like. So we know we're at a juncture, we know things are, are, are not good right now, and that we really need to have change. And I want that change to be driven by the needs, the values, the preferences and priorities of everyday people living in Canada. Um, and so we've I've worked with an organization called Mass LBP, um, who have a lot of experience with citizen engagement. And um, we've designed a three-phase initiative. So our first phase is a national research survey um, where we hope to hear from people across Canada. And that's actually open till October 18th. So I'd urge your listeners to go on to ourcare.ca and take our national research survey. Um, and then our second phase is what we work our reference panels in um, specific provinces. So right now we have funding to do it in Ontario. We're hopeful to also accrue funding um, shortly to do it in a few other provinces and territories where we do a deep dive into a province and the issues there. We What we do is we educate um, about, we're, we're gonna recruit people to volunteer for these panels. You again, go to ourcare.ca if you're interested. Um, from the people who volunteer, we'll randomly select 35 that roughly um, uh, uh, match the demographics of the province. And then we'll educate them about all these issues in primary care that are actually like fairly complicated, the history, get them kind of behind the scenes. And then we'll walk them through some of the key dilemmas and ask them their advice. 
It's like a mini and, citizens assembly. Is it? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to do that. Um, and, and, and that'll be the second phase. And then the third phase is really important as well, which is we're going to have all these results from the first two phases, but we know that not everyone needs the same things in Canada. And that also some people are more likely to participate in things like a survey or a reference panel. And so the third phase is really about trying to prioritize the voices of marginalized communities and bringing those to the forefront and understanding how their needs, values, and preferences might be different from what it is that we um, were hearing otherwise. I should mention, you know, Nate, when we were talking about the issues of people not having family doctors, that's actually worse in some neighborhoods that, you know, are more likely to be low income or marginalized or for people who are new to Canada. The trade-offs, I went through the survey. I encourage other people to do it. It, it takes, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes or so, but I found it valuable because I had never really reflected on what I cared about in the healthcare system in quite the same way. And there are trade-offs because in your writing and Many people have made the same kind of point, but the family doctor in an idealized version, potentially, is someone who knows you, your life circumstances, your medical history, and is going to be a better doctor because of that continuous relationship. But I don't value that that much, it turns out, because what I value is just getting my damn appointment when I need my appointment, when I'm not feeling great, and I have a question for a doctor. And if if it's Nicholas, who I love, my family doctor, or if it's someone else on the team, or frankly, if it's someone else in the neighborhood that's not that far away from me, I just, when I'm not feeling great and I need care, I I want it on demand, as it were. That's the thing I value most, and I'm willing to make the trade-off. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So there's, again, a lot of research evidence that actually the secret sauce of family medicine is the relationship. Um, and if we have a strong relation, if there's a strong relationship and what we call continuous care, so the same, the patient seeing the same family doctor over time, that actually results in lots of better outcomes, um, better preventive care, better chronic condition care, less um, emergency department use, and actually lower death rates even. So like there's been tons of- So studies. I should care more about this than, <laughs> than I did. Well, Sorry. what I'd say though, you're- <laughs> You're probably a pretty healthy, healthy person, right? And you're you're relatively young. You're also a white man, so you do have some, you know, some privilege and may not feel uncomfortable sharing your story with others in the same way that someone maybe who maybe a black woman who's like new to Canada might. I've got over discomfort also. I've got Crohn's. So oh, okay. It, initially it's quite an uh, an uncomfortable disease to talk about with one's doctor but at some point i'm just a shameless person that i'm i'm able to talk <laughs> about it but I, but I, I will say when i was younger when i was less confident in you yeah know, in in having crohn's i suppose when i was new to it it was a deeply uncomfortable thing to talk about regardless of whether it was a doctor i i had and i'd seen 20 times before or someone new in some ways, it was easier when it was someone new because it was like a stranger. In some ways, it was easier to talk to that person. Yeah, so we're, I mean, we're delving into the complexity of why people make certain choices. There's so many factors, um, including personal comfort and personality that, you know, yeah. but <laughs> one of the things we we ask about in our, in our survey is just this trade-off is, you know, if you do have something that's bothering you. And we kind of pick a range of scenarios. So different people will get different scenarios. So it might be a mental health scenario where you're feeling depressed, or it might be that you just have a sore throat. What would you choose? Would you choose to go see your family doctor and, and or a, a walk-in uh, walk clinic provider who doesn't know you? 
Um, or does it change if, you know, the walk-in clinic provider actually has access to your records? Um, or how does it change based on the differences in how quickly the family doctor could see you um, versus the walk-in clinic? So we were trying to disentangle that kind of trade-off between what is often timeliness and continuity of care. Yeah, exactly. That is that is the... Yeah. Uh, that came through loud and clear in okay. filling out the survey because it... it and. I tended, as I say, to care more about the timeliness, but I can appreciate at a system level that continuous level of care for better outcomes makes entire sense to me. Yeah, and and but we have to design a system that works for people. And but at this at, at the same time, I think is cognizant of what will provide good outcomes. Um, and I think one of the things that's tricky is some of the Band-Aid solutions that have come forth, um, especially that have grown during the pandemic, actually, I think are almost at risk of making the wound worse. Um, so one example um, is the rise of virtual walk-in clinics. So this would be, you know, you can, to your point, you want care on demand, you know, you go into your app and like maybe you can access a doctor right there. The doctor isn't going to see you in person. <laughs> So there's some like very clear limitations about what they can do, but you feel like you're getting in touch with somebody. And then the doctor is getting paid often through the public system and they're not working in the public system, seeing their patients or as a, you know, a regular care provider. Instead, they're working as virtual walk-in clinic. And interestingly, the care at the virtual walk-in clinic, some of the early research we've done. So we just have a preprint out that shows that um, in fact, people who are seeing a virtual walk-in clinic doctor versus any kind of seeing their own family doctor for a virtual um, appointment, they're more likely to uh, end up going to the emergency department. Interesting. And and you can kind of maybe get a sense why, because, you know, if you can't actually examine the person after, there's lots of limitations to what it is that you can do. But you can also see how that, you know, investing in that kind of solution is potentially making the problem worse because you're drawing uh, doctors away from some of the more what we know are the structurally sound solutions that are going to provide us with better care and outcomes. Yeah, even on a cost basis, you might say, oh, well, of course, virtual care will reduce costs. But then if you're driving people into emergency rooms in a, to a greater degree than if yeah. they just waited a day and seen their own family doctor, then you're exacerbating the cost problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and so what we need to do is figure out how we can provide that kind of accessible care while also strengthening the relationship. Um, and I do think that's um, possible, but it does mean investment. And I think um, so. So when we look at some of our our con other countries around the world that have strong primary care, they have invested in the information technology systems. Um, so that family doctors can, for example, more easily do secure messaging with patients or, uh, um, or you know, asynchronous messaging. So you and I could, if you were my patient, we could communicate in a way uh, like email, but it's secure. And What an uh, amazing and idea, eh? Communicating <laughs> by email. I, I'll say as a lawyer who, when I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not practicing now, I haven't practiced in many years, but when I would practice we'd put pretty confidential information that ultimately much would depend on both financially and personally in people's lives into emails. 
And then I can't get like a basic update about my health and a check, yeah. check up by email. It's crazy to me. Well, it is pretty varied. I mean, I will say I'm one of those family doctors who does use email. Uh, I use secure messaging, but I also give out my email address. And if people choose to email me at that email address, it tells me they're obviously comfortable with asking that kind of question. And if it's something really confidential, if it's confidential, like I will just do it on the secure portal to them, but they can email me. Right. Anyway, so just to say that I think some of us have moved to that. So it's not like we're all in the dark ages here. And, you know, no, no. And that was actually a choice when I was choosing a family doctor. Yeah. The willingness to embrace technology mattered a lot to me. Yeah. So that it's again, when we're looking for what we want out of a healthcare system, there is some variation already within the system that you start to actively choose. But then to the point of the original point of, of the, the, unequal access, the lack of access, not everyone has the opportunity to find someone who is willing to embrace those digital tools and and that technology, because in their own community, it might not be available or those doctors might be oversubscribed. Yeah. And and we're also serving lots of different people. Um, I think what one of the things that was um, affecting for me, uh, I, when I worked with Peter McLeod from MassLBP in the past, it was on something pretty small where we um, he helped us do a patient engagement day in our family health team, where we got to hear from people in our family health team about um, how we could make the typical appointment better. And, um, you know, I could talk a lot about that, but uh, just fast forward to a year or two after we did that, I met one of the people who were, who was uh, one of the patients who participated in that day in our urgent care clinic. And, you know, they said to me, that was like a really great experience. Uh, thank you. So, and, you know, really valuable. Thank you so much for for organizing it. Um, you know, I came into that day thinking that like I had some very specific ideas I wanted to put forth that I thought would improve my care. Like I really wanted you guys to do online booking. And then like I I came and I met other people and I really realized that like my issues were not like the most important issues and would actually not address the most important concerns that people yeah, have. Exactly. And and so that's what really like powered me to do this work around engaging the public. Because it's about us learning from the public, but it's also about the public learning from each other, I think. Um, because there are so many, like, you have to put yourself in other people's shoes. So one of the things we try in our clinic is also and to try and make it as low accessibility as possible in the sense that if you have an issue for a long time, we did have this, this uh, um, policy where you could walk in. You could walk in if you really needed care and we would see you. And we still do have that policy. It was difficult during covid but, but um, you know, we discourage it, but sometimes that's actually the most people don't want to wait on the phone or figure out with internet, like it's just too hard. And, and when they're sick, they just need to come in and then, and then we will see them. I had an eye infection and I had let it get too terrible. And I went into, it was Sunday. I couldn't get access to a doctor. So I went into, I was told to go to emergency basically and so I went into emergency and I was like, I'm, I feel so badly. I hear these stories about the emergency rooms being so backlogged and I I probably shouldn't be here. And the woman looks at me and is like, what is wrong with you? You need care right now. And here's like three antibiotics. And uh, so I think it's right to discourage it, you know, uh, absolutely. But then to have that available, because uh, eventually I was like, yeah, I got I got to do this. And yeah, when did well, it? You know, the on-demand care was there when when I needed it. And I think what you're actually pointing out is another thing that I think we need to do better at and that we've heard from patients as well is just um, educating po people better about, you know, what it is that you can get from your family doctor's office, 
when you might need to go to the eMERGE and you know what you can do to get well on your own and take care of yourself. And, and that last part became, I think, more common during COVID because people right. had to uh, during the Omicron wave, like uh, there wasn't, unfortunately, you know, our system didn't have the capacity to, to zero. And so we were counseling, you know, people, we were trying to put as much information online. We built this site called Confused About COVID. And, you know, we're really trying to support people to be able to manage on their own. And we need to do that in general more. Um, and, and then, and then, yeah, we can be, we be there for them when they, when they do need it. You mentioned international experience and you wrote something that I found really interesting. There are health systems around the world that have figured out how to ensure that all their residents have access to high quality primary care. So can't we just do what those other countries do? What are those other countries and how do we copy them? Yeah, it's a it's it's a really great point. So we've been uh, our team has been looking at some of these countries and trying to kind of understand what it is that they do um, or that's different. And of course, there's so many things that are contextually different. So we always have to keep in mind we're a vast geographic country in Canada with lots sure. of rural communities. So there's specific things that are different for us. Um, but then there's also the historical kind of place we're at. It's amazing that we have you know this commitment to universal health insurance coverage so that everyone should be able to get care based on um, need and not ability to pay. Um, But interestingly, like other countries have come to that in slightly different ways. So for example, the Netherlands is one of the countries that has like a very high rate of the population having a family doctor. And they have uh, what I understand to be four competing insurance systems. Everyone in the country has coverage, but there's kind of like a competition between these um, for insurance systems. Um, now I'm not an ex- expert in the Netherlands and their and their uh, health system, so forgive me if I'm, I'm making some mistakes here and I appreciate being corrected by any of your listeners. But that's my understanding. And and when we were talking to them, I think what that also means is that there's a little bit more accountability. Um, so uh, you know, an insurer would have to approve a doctor setting up shop within their uh, within an area and. That that uh, that doctor then would of course have to would be then billing that insurer, and there's like a, a kind of a culture of everyone having a family doctor and having that family doctor relatively close to where they live. Um, um, but some of the 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 things that are different there is it seems to me that there are fewer family doctors who do kind of specialized care. Um, they actually train more doctors altogether. They've invested in these like information technology systems that make um, care, I think, more seamless across different parts of the healthcare system, but also between patients and doctors. And um, they also pay the doctors, I think, differently with some forms of capitation too. Um, the other kind of system that we, you know, looked at is like in the in the United Kingdom, um, the UK. They they also they of course have also um, universal health insurance and through the National Health Service there. There was really interesting, and I, um, I myself lived there for a short period of time for a year when we were studying, and we actually had a six-month-old at that time. And when you go and you move to the UK, you're uh, automatically told like you can sign up with any of these, you know, two, three, four practices that are in the geographic area where you live. And so there's this concept of almost like geographic attachment to a practice in a very similar way that we have for the public education system. So when you move into a neighborhood, you have the right to public education. 
you go to your neighborhood school and there's like no wait list, no questions asked, like they have to accommodate you and figure out the resources. So that is a very interesting model. One, it's familiar to us in a different mm-hmm. setting. And two, it seems to strike that balance between access and continuous care, where there will be an interruption to continuous care if I move out of a neighborhood. And we know that it's, you know, I, I worried when I when I moved my son's school, what the continuity would be for him. But he's going to be in that same that new school now for an extended period of time. And, and so there will be renewed continuity for him over, you know, going forward, at least. And so it's not perfect. There will be interruptions along the way. But it does strike, I think, a nice balance between those two considerations of continuous care and immediate access. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think the other part of access and continuity where there's a little bit of a trade-off is you're attached to a practice sometimes, but not a doctor within it. Right. So that can be a bit tricky talking to some physicians there. Um, I think they lose when when we compare ourselves to the UK mm-hmm. on the international rankings, um, they do much better than us when it comes to accessibility from a timeliness perspective, but they do much worse when it comes to continuity. And there, that can have some consequences for both the patients and the and the um, clinicians. Um, but I still think that it's a concept. The overall concept is one we can learn from, um, because ideally, if you are a more complicated patient, you are having a doctor that you are seeing on a more regular basis. I wondered about that trade-off too, with respect to this team-based and integrated health model yeah. that all of my very smart colleagues who know what they're talking about seem to talk about. And and when I'm doing reading in this space, it keeps coming up. And you've referenced the team model a couple of times already. And my understanding of this would be you'd have, okay, a family doctor, of course, as part of the team. You'd have a complement to that of nurse practitioners. You'd have a complement to that even of potentially social workers, pharmacists. I didn't see PSWs in the mix, but it may make sense for a PSW to be in the mix as well. As a This is a lawyer's perspective of things, because I always thought that lawyers did too much work that they didn't need to do because they got to bill $400 an hour, $300 an hour, $600 an hour, unreasonable sums. And okay, maybe reasonable sums if it's a very high profile case and there's lots of money at stake. But in some cases, lawyers are billing those amounts for work that a law clerk can do or a paralegal can do. Mm. And at the same time, if we think of the continuity of care, Mm. it might make sense in some cases for a PSW or a nurse practitioner or someone else on the team to be looking after that patient. But it does mean that you aren't seeing that family doctor regularly in, in quite the same way. And, and you do z- potentially lose a bit of that continuity. So in an ideal team-based model, um, you're sharing records among yourself and you're actually um, huddling even among yourselves for patients who are um, have more complexity. Okay. so that, um, and, that, and that means that the team itself is then going to have that continuous relationship. That would be the idea. So in a, in a well-functioning team, hopefully the patient would feel some continuity, not just to one person, but to the team. And, and that can have advantages in terms of if one of the team members is away, then the other team members knows um, the patient and can provide that care. And yeah, teams, you know, there's a reason why lots of smart people are saying that teams are the way to go. There's like pretty clear evidence in, um, that Teams are better for patients, they're better for the clinicians, and then they're better for for the system. So when it comes to patients, um, even some of the research we've done here in Ontario has shown that 
patients who were attached to teams, they were um, more likely to get recommended chronic condition care, um, care for diabetes. They were also less likely to use the emergency department. Um, that was overlooking kind of a, comparing a six year before and after period of, of being with the team. Um, so it took some time to kind of see that, that difference. And then, you know, when we think about the provider side, uh, it it's protective against burnout. And you can imagine why, like we talked about early on, all this complexity that we have now in medicine. And uh, there's medical complexity, there's also social complexity that we deal with a lot. And having other team members to support that so that understanding that you as a doctor can't be the expert in everything and instead relying on your other team members is amazing. Um, it means that patients then are you know, able to um, that, get value from that as well. And ultimately, as a doctor, you're not alone. And then from a system perspective, of course, um, it, it grows the capacity of the physician uh, to see more patients as, if done right. I say the if done right, because I think there can be expansion of team-based models in a way that doesn't grow the capacity unless there is very specific, I think, accountability for that aspect. Um, but if done right, it means, you know, we take a long time to, to train a family doctor and we want that family doctor's time and resource to be used as best as it can be or as efficiently as it can be. And I think it can be used for the benefit of more people if the family doctor is working together with the team. And I will say, I'm lucky to be one of those family doctors who's lucky to work in a team. So I work with um, social workers, nurses, nurse practitioners, dietitians, and, and others. And uh, I will say during uh, COVID, it's just been invaluable. I mean, it's always been invaluable, but during COVID in particular. Can I ask, because you mentioned dietitians, and there's always a challenge in the Canadian context with respect to our healthcare system where it is incredibly reactive and not preventative. Mm. And it's a mistake on in terms of quality care and outcomes. It's a mistake also in terms of the costs. And when I think of dietitians on a team, obviously they can provide a reactive component to advice, but they can also provide a proactive component to advice. And, and how often, if you look at the team-based model, is the team proactively reaching out to your patients to say, here are be here is best advice and here is you know our guidance to you and take it for what it is but you know we're, this is a way to improve your health i think um supporting people around preventive healthcare is really a core part of family medicine um it, you know everything from immunizations to cancer screening but then also yeah, advice yeah, around yeah, better, even better examples uh, advice around um, smoking and alcohol and drug use, um, uh, sexual health. So there's a, like a whole slew of things that we do around preventive health um, that are really important. And your point is a great one, Nate, because I think we can probably be even more efficient in the way we do it for populations that are relatively healthy. Um, and then focus more individually one-on-one -on -one for people who um, have chronic conditions um, and, and need that. Even people with stable chronic conditions, having group visits and kind of doing it more collectively has been found to be quite efficient. Um, yeah, so, so I think absolutely we do a lot of preventive care uh, as part of what we do. But I will say like during COVID in particular, you know, the having help with the acute and chronic issues is really important. And one place in particular that I'll draw attention to is, you know, as family doctors, it may not be seem obvious, but we actually a lot, a lot of what we do is mental health and addictions work. And having a social worker who can support that work 
Um, as you know, like mental health is one of those parts of the healthcare system that isn't great. Uh, um, basically there's that's a, a lot. That's, that's a polite not, way. That's a polite way of putting it. <laughs> there's a lot that's not publicly covered, right? There's just yeah. a lot that's oh, not yeah. publicly covered. And, um, one of the things that's, that's happened now is if you're lucky to be in a practice with a, so, a, a family doctor who works with a social worker, you actually have some access to some mental health support that you wouldn't yeah. have otherwise, or social navigation. You know, lots of people also struggled socially during the pandemic. So I think if my colleagues had to sort of think about one, one, one kind of team member that in particular would add a lot of value, I think that social work support, I, I mean, they're, they're all valuable nurses, pharmacists, et cetera, but I think people in the public may not recognize how much we do when it comes to mental health addictions and, and social care. You mentioned a number of different ways from team-based care to structuring payments away from fee-for-service to capitation, which as I understand it, for those who may not understand that term, because I didn't understand it when I was first reading about it, but the idea is you you pay a doctor based on the patient that they have, not the number of visits that that patient makes to that particular doctor. The which strikes me as the right incentive as opposed to, you know, incentivizing visits that may be unnecessary in some ways. But those are all system design issues. And then there's a dollar issue here, too. There's an investment issue. The province is ultimately responsible for the system design issues. But the federal government is going to have to pony up, I think, a significant payment in the course of coming bilateral health accords. And we'll be able to make certain priorities front and center. I, I hope we make access to primary care. I would expect we will make access to primary care uh, front and center priority as part of those negotiations. But how much more money, when you think of access to primary care, is needed in a system that maybe other jurisdictions are providing that we're not providing? And we're at a, a baseline that seems a challenging baseline right now if 5 million Canadians are without access to primary care. How much more money needs to be put into this system? That's a great question. And I didn't research that prior to our <laughs> talk, but I will say that there are some benchmarks out there. And um, I think we do need to look at, you know, what the, um, the, so the World Health Organization and others have looked at kind of where is the right level of investment for primary care. And I, I do know from um, work we've done that we're below where we should be um, when it comes to spending, you know, you made the point, Nate, that we often go to kind of where the problems are and so or the acute issues and so i think you know we're we're known for spending more on drugs and hospitals etc and less on things like public health and primary care that help to provide that foundation of good health um, to avoid um, other kinds of spending um, so it's no question that we need an injection of investment specifically to primary care and then what we do need along with that, I think, are, you know, some some direction on the best ways to use that money. The statement that you made in one of your articles that I think is summarizes this conversation away, health systems founded on good primary care have better outcomes, lower costs and better equity and better outcomes unquestionably is what we want. But I will say when we were looking at different competing priorities and budget cycles, knowing that putting money into improving and increasing access to primary care, quality primary care, will also result in lower costs to the healthcare system overall is a pretty compelling argument. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to be thinking about that long-term investment. I think I also, you know, think sometimes about primary care, as you said in the very beginning of this podcast, as the foundation of our healthcare system. And if you think about an analogy with like our house foundation, it's something that is often unseen or like something you don't think about. Maybe it's like relatively unsexy, and but at the end of the day, it's holding up this whole whole other house or healthcare system. And, you know, I think there were cracks in it before the pandemic, as we talked about, um, and then the pandemic just widened those cracks. And what we're seeing now is family doc- as primary care is kind of becoming more and more fractured as fewer people have access, you know, other parts, it's affecting other parts of the healthcare system. So when people end up using the emergency department or having to depend on specialists for things that specialists aren't, don't have expertise in. Um, so yeah, we, we need to invest in fam- in primary care and family medicine for the reasons you mentioned, and we haven't done enough of that over time. And we're now paying the consequences. And when you describe it as the front door to the healthcare system, and then that front door was closed for many people, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, we are, we are now seeing, you know, missed chronic disease assessments and, as just one example, but there are many knock-on consequences to the lack of access overall for other parts of the healthcare system, as you say. I appreciate the time. I, everyone should go and fill out the same survey. You may have a different sense of a trade-off than I did. And if you want to, I, I think it'd be really interesting to take part. I would not have the time myself, but it'd be very interesting to take part in the mini citizens assembly. I, I think that'd be fascinating. I've never participated in one, but I, I think it's just a really interesting addition to serious civic engagement in, in this country. So I appreciate the work that, that you're doing with, in, in partnership with Mass. And otherwise, as I, you know, there is a federal conversation, as I say, to be had around bilateral health accords and the priorities. And I have every expectation this will be a priority. But as I turn my mind to provincial politics in some ways, I, I'm going to steal more of your time going forward and, and, and make sure that I'm the best advocate on an issue like this that I can be. And I very much appreciate all of your advocacy and time. Thank you so much for having me today, Nate. And yeah, please go to ourcare.ca, take the survey. You can also learn more about the primary care issues on our site through some of the articles we have there. And we're going to do our best to be transparent about everything we learn and post our results there transparently. So check back periodically to to find out what it is that your fellow Canadians want to see. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Thanks to Dr. Kieran for all of her work. You can read her writing recently in The Star. Definitely check out ourcare.ca. Fill out the survey if you got 15 minutes. It's an interesting perspective. It will focus your own attention on what you really want out of the healthcare system, which is an interesting exercise in and of itself, but it also really helps to inform a broader view of what patients overall want out of our system that I think can be really helpful and, and will be really helpful going forward. Dr. Kieran is also a constituent of Beaches East York, so, I have, so I'm have appreciative of her time and work in particular. As always, you can reach me at info at beynate.ca, beynate for social media, and otherwise, until next time.